The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to IMC. I'm delighted that you're here and we get to be together. And um, one of the purposes of Dharma Talks is to teach about the practice of mindfulness, practice of the Dharma practice. And so we might talk about meditation, we might talk about mindfulness in daily life, we might talk about the practices of ethics, all kinds of things. And in, in one of the principles of mindfulness is everything is practice. So one of the very important practices in Buddhism that is the practice of listening to a Dharma talk. <laughs> which is what we'll talk about today. And, uh, and so one of the interesting things about talking about Dharma talks, the practice of listening to a talk, is that all of you, for the most part, are going to be listening to this Dharma talk. <laughs> and so it's about you, and you're listening. So I want to um, uh, read a, a little story from this book, The Monastery Within, A Monastery Within. A young woman from another country moved with her family to live for one year in a town near the monastery. When in the course of the year she discovered the monastery, she would periodically visit to have discussions with the abbess. The abbess introduced her to meditation, which became very meaningful for the young woman. When the family's one-year-long stay was drawing to an end, the young woman said, ask the abbess, in my country, there is no Buddhism and no one has even heard about meditation. How can I continue to learn and deepen the practice you have started me on? The abbess said, when you return home, ask far and wide for who among the wise people is recognized as having the greatest ability to listen. Ask that person to instruct you in the art of listening. What you learn about listening from such a person will teach you how to further your meditation practice. The art of listening. Those people who were the direct disciples of the Buddha were called in the ancient language, the listeners the savakas, those who listened. And in the ancient world, listening was a primary way of getting information from others. There was no, nothing written really back then, and there was no, you know, Twitter or, to get you know, all kinds of things. Uh, it was all through the voice, and people, if they wanted, there's no libraries, so if you wanted to uh, remember what was being taught you, you really had to pay attention closely. So it went in and stayed there so you can remember it afterwards. It's a very different way to listen if you're taking something in in order to retain it for the future. It requires a higher attentiveness, a higher receptivity, a higher sense of presence, less distraction, less scattered of the mind. And um, it turns out that those qualities are really important for the Dharma practice. 
And in fact, when the Buddha, when he gave Dharma talks, uh, he gave particularly profound teachings when he understood that the audience, the mind of the audience, people in the audience, was ready, receptive, free from hindrances, um, uh, uh, elated, and bright. The word bright sometimes translated as confident, trusting. So there was a, a recognition that a certain state of mind can receive teachings in a very different way than uh, if you're scattered and spinning and preoccupied with all kinds of things, if you're, if you have an attitude of resistance and you, you know you don't like this, you don't want to be part of this or something. Um, how we are, how we show up, is actually a very important part of the listen, the practice of listening to a Dharma talk. And it's so so significant that um, um, there's a. If you're listening to a Dharma talk for the Dharma, you'll find it, the Dharma, in the listening. So it's not in the words necessarily, it's not out there in the speaker, but you turn the attention backward on itself. What you're looking for is in the attention. What you're looking for is in the looking. What you're hearing for is in the hearing. It's a quality of attention that we're really focusing on here. And then with a, with a certain quality of attention we have, then we are, can listen and be receptive in a way that uh, touches something really deep inside. So there's many ways of practicing with the Dharma talk. And uh, when you listen to them, and, and what strikes me as I give this talk is how much listening to Dharma talks is going on in this world in a way that I don't think has ever gone on in the history of humanity. I mean, among some people. I mean, there's still a majority of people in the planet don't listen to Dharma talks. But, uh, but uh, those in, people in our scene, it's phenomenal how much people listen. I mean, when I was uh, growing up in the Dharma, I was lucky if I listened to one Dharma talk a week. Sometimes it might be a month before there was an opportunity to be with a teacher. Like it was in the monastery, we didn't have Dharma talks that often, and the abbot didn't come through that often. And sometimes we'd have two or three in a row, and two days and three days in a row, but then he wasn't around. And, and so to, this idea of listening to a Dharma talk was kind of unusual. And uh, in, um, in, the, you know, in, in, histor- in historical times, not so many decades ago in Thailand, there are stories of uh, people who are really serious about the practice who would walk for weeks because, you know, you couldn't get on a plane, you couldn't go on a train. They'd walk for weeks searching for, for a teacher who was going to give them teaching. So imagine, you know, you, the preparation that takes and imagine showing up to hear those teachings after all that searching for that person walking through the jungles of Thailand and, you know, and contending with tigers and wild elephants and then finally you find that person and you say well I don't really feel like it today <laughs> and um, so um, so it, you know it brought a certain kind of seriousness attentiveness and there is a lot of seriousness about listening to Dharma talks but they're so readily available 
uh, through the technology now. And there are people now who listen to Dharma talks every day. And uh, some people I know who do more. And sometimes, you know, it's been a tremendous support and help for people uh, listening to talks. And sometimes it's a lot better than the alternative that's available to them with their own mind and activity and whatever's going on. And this regular listening to it, and people have discovered all kinds of ways to listen that didn't exist in the old world. Um, People have told me they listened together with friends. It used to be when they, I guess before Bluetooth, they would have a wireless, you know, wired mic with two, you know, for one for each ear. But the friends would walk along with one in each of their ears. They go for walks and just listen together that way. Or people go for runs. People listen to Dharma talks going to work. And um, and so there's something something that about Dharma talks and now now it's just not Buddhism even it's podcasts people listen to there's something about the oral word that <clears throat> people aren't reading as much as they used to Dharma it used to be that Dharma books was the thing to do and uh, and kind of I grew up in Buddhism was mostly in the books and I had a whole art to how to read Dharma books that really when I was in the monastery to really to the reading itself, the way I read was the Dharma. And, um, and But now we're going to the oral, which is historically what always happened. And there's a kind of different richness in the oral uh, spoken word. It conveys much more than just sometimes the words do. You get some kind of the tone, the speed, the cadence. Uh, sometimes if you're lucky or the teacher's lucky, uh, something of the teacher's practice comes through in how they speak. And, and so it, um, you know, it, it conveys more than just the content in the words. And so how to listen, one of the things is to listen to more than just the words. To listen to what else is being conveyed. There's a, some people talk about there's a transmission sometimes in a Dharma talk. I've listened to talks from teachers who just transmitted kindness and it was, just, it was so wonderful just to feel the kindness. They didn't understand their talks. <laughs> so, but the kindness really touched me. Or the compassion. Sometimes it was clarity. And sometimes some people were so clear in how they spoke the Dharma that I could have certainly understand them. But there was something really brilliant that it did to me to hear the clarity in which it was presented. Like, wow, it made my mind somehow clear and listening. There's uh, some people, um, when they give talks, uh, uh, their confidence in the Dharma is what's contagious. And uh, the words are fine, but what really changes the people who listen is that, wow, this person feels has a lot of confidence, inspiration around it. I'm inspired now by this person's confidence. I built, you know, something. So there's all kinds of other things that we can take in besides the words. There's also um, what we're listening for. And I think that over time, listening to Dharma talks changes what people listen for. Uh, I think when people are new, it's pretty common to listen for the content, the words, the meaning. Some people, and it's really meaningful and really powerful sometimes to hear some of these teachings for the first time. And, um, And I've been told by people, like the first talk they ever heard just blew them away the first talk they heard, something shifted inside of them. And, um, <clears throat> and for most of it's later, <clears throat> but uh, you know, still it can happen. But we're listening for information, we're listening for practice, we're listening for something that makes sense out of life. 
and often it's the content of the words that were of this, what's being said. <clears throat> As people start doing the practice, and maybe they've listened to a lot of talks, the content is still important at times, but there might be other things that are going on that are important. And um, when I was in the monastery, um, uh, I, w- I listened. Uh, I, we always would sit in meditation during the talks. So, meaning, even our eyes would be, you know, either closed or in Zen, you look your eyes down. In, this, in, in Zen, there was a very formal meditation posture to be in. So we would be in the meditation posture, listening to the talk with the eyes down. There was no nodding, you know, oh, that's good. <laughs> Which is nice, because then, then the Dharma teachers gets feedback and, you know, and, you know sees what's going on the energetically and stuff. But we were just there sometimes. And I, I had this wonderful, wonderful... Uh, uh, there's a Zen upside-down smile, which I'm, which I'm very capable of sitting there. <laughs> it probably looked a little intense, but you know, came from some, something to do with the concentration or the effort. And um, but I would sit there and listening to the abbot very attentively. But what I, what my mind I was in my meditation state, and what my mind was drawn into was the the voice what's being spoken. And I would get more concentrated listening to the talk than I did in my own meditation. And that's not uncommon for some people to have. Something about a certain kinds of Dharma talk, people get absorbed into the words. So they don't necessarily, the, the words become more, less and less important as they just kind of sit right there. Not, their mind is unwavering, not moving at all, just absorbed in it. And I would leave the talk completely still, completely open, relaxed. I'd walk outside and just be in awe of the sparkle of everything and the peace that I felt. Other times I would be meditating with the talk and you know, kind of didn't hear much. It kind of went washed right through me. And that's a whole other art to do is to allow the talk to wash through, to stay present for it, but don't hang on to the words. Don't repeat them, don't question them, and don't apply them. Oh, you know, this is interesting, and, you know, and, well, you know, and now think about other ways I can, apl- I can listen to the Dharma. I'm sure I, now I have this device in my kitchen that talks to me, and I can talk to it, and I can just call up all kinds of Dharma. T- and you've lost t- touch of my talk, because you're already applying it. And um, the other thing is just, is just let it stay in it, but let it wash over you, wash through you. With a principle that if what's important for you to hear, if there's something important for you to hear, um, it'll stick. It'll touch something. So you don't have to be looking and trying and straining to kind of find something and get something as if you're trying to grab hold on tight for something important. You want to just be very receptive and see what finds its way to your heart or finds its way to some depth inside of you. And I've had that happen to me where I was just following along, following along, just letting it wash through. And then I was, but in this receptive state that I'm in, uh, I hear a sentence, hear a word, boom. You know, something happens. And I've known people who, it was just a word someone said, and boom, that just kind of made, shifted things or organized their mind, their thinking, or the, the puzzle of their life kind of came together and fit together. Wow. Okay, and um, and uh, a common thing that people will say uh, to Dharma teachers is, 
you know, I've listened to a lot of your talks, and I think you've said this a lot of, to- lot of times before, but I could never understand it. When you said it today, it just changed me. Thought, oh boy, it really made a difference today. Because we weren't receptive, the mind wasn't prepared, the life conditions hadn't come together so that it made sense so it could land in some deep way. So uh, one of the things that we want to be careful for in listening to the Dharma talk is not to be listening in a way that hinders benefiting from the talk. And one of the ways that hinders it is to begin doubting it. Begin sus- suspicious. You know, you know, you know, uh, you know. You know, and I've seen people kind of come to IMC here and like, they're like looking out of the dark glasses and, you know, it's like you can feel like they're like not having, buying any of this and, you know, you know. And, um, and um, it looks, usually looks that way. <laughs> and um, the, um, but I know, I know some people, many of us maybe, I certainly have this tendency to sometimes um, uh, have a bias towards what we don't believe or we don't like or what doesn't sound right to us, but not my preference. And there's some wisdom to that. I mean, you're not supposed to just agree to a Dharma talk just because it's being taught. Being taught. Um, you shouldn't have blind, you know, trust in a Dharma teacher just because they're a Dharma teacher. But, um, but there is something about the art of taking in something that's challenging. To, uh, and w- so one of the things I've learned is um, it's easy not to like something. It's easy to see that something is maybe wrong. That's relatively easy. And if that's the case for you, then it's wrong for you. You're not getting any benefit of it, except maybe more confidence in your opinionated mind. You know, that you're, or your sense of, I'm right, and that you're wrong, or something. So, I don't want to dismiss people's, your wisdom, that you actually discern what's useful and not useful, what's right, what's wrong, maybe. That's an important thing to do. However, even if someone says something which you don't like, even if you say something which you think is wrong, it's probably not 100% wrong. And so the, the interesting question is to say to yourself, well, I don't quite agree with that, but let me see. Is there some point or other in some situation in my life where this thing will be useful? So, for example, if it's been said that an unpopular Dharma uh, theme for talks is renunciation. And so, you know, so as soon as the renunciation Dharma talk comes out, sit back with the sunglasses on and hat down, and, you know, okay, I'm not going to listen to this renunciation, these Buddhists. They're just party poopers. And, um, and so, uh, but instead... If the person asks themselves, well, I mostly disagree with this, this renunciation is overdone, the way Buddhists talk about it, which could be, that's a fine opinion to have. But let me think, is there any, you think in this, you know, in this life of mine that I've lived or that I'm going to live, is there any place, maybe, where it'd be useful to learn a little bit more about renunciation so that's the right thing to do? And this person says, sure enough, uh, there comes a time that renunciation is helpful. 
the thing that you've been looking forward to for months is watching the Super Bowl. <laughs> and you just like, hardly listen to the drama talk because you're already, you know, thinking ahead to this afternoon, you know, and where you're going to be and what you're going to do and how great it's going to be with the chips or something. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know... And, it, and so, and you don't even listen to talk on renunciation, but you know that was the topic. And then you come home, and it's about time for the Super Bowl. It's so exciting. Your neighbor calls and says, I have appendicitis. Can you take me to the hospital? No. <laughs> <laughs> And your neighbor says, but aren't you Buddhist into renunciation? (laughs) No. (laughs) I have my priorities. (laughs) And I I want something, I want it, and I don't want to have to do, you know, not want, you know, tough luck on you. Or in that circumstance, I think maybe you'd understand renunciation might be a good thing. Renouncing the Super Bowl to get your friend to the hospital before the appendicitis gets to a massive system, you know, infection throughout their body and they die. I hope that that would be <laughs> warrant some renunciation. So, so, but the principle here I'm saying is, rather than disagreeing, you, if you disagree, you might not benefit at all. If you do the exercise in what circumstance is this teaching useful? Is it beneficial? Then you find some benefit. And this, uh, this is part of the principle here also is, you have to do some work with the Dharma. There is certainly a time to listen to the Dharma, just the words going through and wash through and not engage with thinking about it. And there's a time to reflect and to think and, and, um, and consider some people do it during a Dharma talk, some people do it after. And, uh, and to never spend time reflecting on it and questioning it, both questioning it and, you know, how it works, what doesn't work, all these things, and to try to, get, to try to get from it whatever's beneficial, then you won't benefit as much. So, which is okay, but if you want to benefit from the Dharma, then do some work have friends you talk to. Some people listen to Dharma talks and afterwards they talk with, to friends about it who maybe listen to it as well. And they kind of go back and forth and find out, you know, what's, what struck them and what questions they have. And, and it's a way of kind of finding more value from the Dharma talk. Some people, like I see someone right now, maybe, are, 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 are writing uh, down some of the things being said in the Dharma talk. Some people find that very beneficial to listen and to write. And there are times I do that uh, because uh, I listen better. And I, uh, sometimes, like, the some, most common place I do it is when I teach with someone else and I feel like I really need to stay on top of what they're teaching so that I can be in harmony with them or understand it. So then I'll, I'll be kind of writing down what they say and I find I'm much more bright, my mind is more attentive and more present. And I need, sometimes I need that extra help because my mind might drift off. Partly because I've heard so many Dharma talks. 
and you say, oh, you know, here we go, you know, and my mind drifts off. So, 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 but having the practice of writing, I'm more deeply engaged, and I, it isn't just that I'm more present, I'm actually processing the material better by that. So that's a nice thing to do. Some people will journal after the Dharma talk and write down what came up for them or how it was. Um, so the principle here, one of the principles I'm trying to convey to you is to be a active listener in the same way that meditation is an activity that you give yourself over to. Even though a lot of it's receptive, a lot of it's like a not doing, it's also, don't be a passive recipient of Dharma talks. That doesn't mean that you're straining or trying hard or, you know. Uh, it means that you're maybe balanced, upright, receptive, ready, available. You're really here to be present for it. Maybe present in your posture. Take a posture that really expresses in People look at you, oh, that person's ready. That person is really here. They're present here and now in their posture. You can feel it in some people. And you can feel when they're not. They're here, yes, but, you know, they're... You know, I've, I've been sometimes in my life such a couch potato slouch that my shoulders were basically in the bottom, you know, kind of... where the bottom of the sofa, and the side back went up, just like... So, you know, so, um, you know, that's not ready and receptive. So, um, and then, and then I'll kind of bring it back to an important point I made at the beginning, is that um, in, in a very important way, what you're listening for is found in the listening the quality of the listening, that's some characteristic of listening. What we're trying to be mindful of, what we're trying to have mindfulness do for us, is found in the quality of the mindfulness itself. What we're being aware of, what we're trying to, what awareness practice is trying to do for us is found in the qualities of awareness itself. So if we're too focused on what's outside of us, the object of attention, what we're listening to, the what's, then we're not paying attention enough to how we are, how we listen, how we are aware, how we speak, how we are. The Dharma is found in the how, not in the what. So to sit in such a way that your how you are is ready, receptive, free from hindrances, free from distractions. Um, this is the, maybe the harder one. Elated. Inspired. And then bright. A bright mind, a bright attention. And uh, sometimes Dharma talks can help that. At least the Buddha did that. It said, it said in the ancient text that he would give talks that would inspire, encourage, brighten, and delight the people who listened. And then he would give his deepest teachings. Isn't that nice? So, the practice of Dharma talks.
it's a wonderful practice. And um, I'm sure many of you who've listened to talks have benefited from it, otherwise you wouldn't keep coming back. And maybe this talk will just kind of give you a little bit more inspiration to notice how, how you show up to be listening to a Dharma talk. And I hope that over time you develop a repertoire, a range of ways to be with Dharma talks that depending on the circumstance, what's going on and how you are, and you understand the different ways so you can choose the different ones at different times as it serves you. So those are my thoughts. And um, maybe some of you even practice this today as I was was giving the talk. Or that's for later, maybe. (laughs) Today you just got the ideas. So we have about 15 minutes. And so I thought maybe we can take about five minutes uh, to, um, if you have any questions or comments about this and uh, or so, and then a few minutes where you can talk with each other about this little bit, if you'd like, and then uh, we'll get ready for the tea. And, and today I have to leave relatively quick uh, to go down and do more teaching um, in Santa Cruz, so I won't be staying around. So any questions, any comments anyone would like to make? It's lovely if you would say your name when you... Hi, I'm Alex. Um, I have a little embarrassing question about listening, actually. So um, I've been doing this thing that uh, you have taught called uh, on breathing in, you connect, on breathing out, you relax. And it works for me phenomenally. But then I was telling somebody about it, and they asked me, connect to what? And I realized I don't know, actually. (laughs) (laughs) So that was a little embarrassing. And so the question actually is not whether, what is it connected to? The question is, should I find out from you what it is connecting to? <laughs> because it's working for me already, right? It's actually not a joke. Yeah, so should I or should I just leave it as it uh, is? Well, well, you just said that it, it's working for you already. Yeah. So if it's something is working, you want to be careful. And maybe not mess yeah, with it too exactly. much. Yeah, <laughs> But at some point, maybe <clears throat> uh, whatever you're doing when you connect, you'll understand. And when, it's, when the time comes, you'll understand what you're doing, what's happening there. But maybe you're not ready even to understand that. You're just, just go for the benefits. It, not, not now, but it might be interesting to hear from you how you're benefiting. Because... If you come back to me and say, oh, yeah, that's really been helpful because it's been giving me really good lottery tickets. I I connect to lottery ticket numbers. And then I'll say, well, (laughs) that's not what I had in mind. (laughs) But so you might have something, you know, better than lottery ticket numbers, but you might, um, you know, hear from you. And that might be interesting. And then maybe we can adjust something if it's useful. Um, so I think I, I'd prefer to leave it like that. Uh, some, I mean, in a di- if you'd asked the question differently, I would have been happy to have explained what I mean by that. But right now, I don't want to mess with you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Betsy. And I was just reflecting that is this a way of, of um, really practicing living and being in the present? And 
kind of getting an experience of being in the present. I'm, I'm kind of, yes, I, yes. I don't yeah. totally have that concept in my head, but that no, just no, it's kind a, of it's, it's, a great, it's a great question. I think uh, it's a reasonable question because we focus so much on meditation in our, in our tradition here. But uh, meditation is just the, the training ground where we're like going to the gym uh, so that we learn how to develop uh, mindfulness, attention, how we learn to develop a certain degree of able to focus, being non-distracted, certain degree of wisdom, certain degree of compassion and care, so that we learn it here in the gym so that we, that we that become strong, so that then we bring it into our life. And in some ways, that's, you know, uh, at least as important as what happens in meditation. And the, go- the goal, in a sense, for our practice is not to have a uh, sharp line between the mind and the heart in meditation and the mind and heart in regular life. And so the idea of bring, bringing some of these qualities of mindfulness attention into our life is definitely what we try to do. And then what's wonderful is that these are uh, reciprocally beneficial for each other. What we learn in meditation, we can then apply to life. As we apply it to life, we learn things about ourselves that then we f- it helps our meditation deepen. And so the two go back and forth in our partners. Uh, hi. Uh, I'm Bruno, and Gil, quickly today you mentioned something uh, about a time when you were reading books about the Dharma, and you said that the Dharma is in the reading, and today you're talking about how the Dharma is in the listening. Uh, is this is this related to the concept of Zazen and Zen, or can you just... Tell a little bit more about it. I, f- I feel like the word dharma is used in so many different yes. ways. And I think today is the first time I, I heard it this way. Yeah. Great, great. Very nice. Yeah, so the dharma is used many ways. Sometimes it means the teachings of the Buddha. And then you can go to a book for that. Maybe. But uh, uh, the book and uh, the writing that way, and just the words, the concepts being given in a talk that, like today... Um, uh, if you spend too much time with that, that's like spending all your time in the restaurant trying to eat the menu. <laughs> At some point, you have to order the food and eat the food. So uh, the Dharma is not found in the menu. The meal is not found in the menu. The, the Dharma is only found in you. Otherwise, it just, otherwise it's just a, uh, and, uh, a uh, you know, concepts and ideas. Sometimes we can feel or sense the Dharma in other people, their maturity, how they've changed, their freedom, their, their compassion. We can feel it. So you can get a sense, oh, that person's really matured in the Dharma. You feel this maturity or f- development that they've had. And that could be inspiring. But um, it's still, don't get too mesmerized by other people. Be inspired by them. But if, for you, it'll only... Be, the Dharma will only be found in you. Thank you. So right behind you there. Yeah. Hi, uh, I'm Jake. Um, I was kind of curious, like, the other side of this, of maybe the art of preparing a talk, or, like, you know, 
giving a talk yeah and you've given thousands by yeah. now <laughs> um do you have any sort of rubric or like checklist or did maybe did you have it in the past where you're like i need to try and capture these things in uh-huh. this talk or yeah. is it you know more freeform yeah than that or do you start with think it's a good idea then you get stuck on it and abandon things or uh-huh. i'm just curious great great question my relationship to giving talks has changed over the years and um and uh, you know so partly because i've given so many and and it's become a lot of what i do has become second nature and sometimes when i try to sometimes when i'm in, when i'm teaching people to become teachers or teacher training I'll explain to people what I do in a Dharma talk. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I think it's useful to teach them that, but I feel very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It, because I, it sounds like I'm being so self-conscious and so, like, you know, fabricated something. But, it, but it's all second nature. and There's all these elements that go on, things I'm paying attention to that's kind of in the background that's going on. But from having done it now for, you know, over 30 years. And um, I'm a slow learner. That's maybe why I keep giving a lot of talks. <laughs> uh, but when I was a new teacher, the first ten years, I often wrote uh, uh, wrote out talks. So the very begin first years of the the first two talks I gave uh, is in Zen, and in Zen you're not supposed to have notes. So I wrote everything out, and then I spent uh, hours memorizing it. And so I didn't use the notes, but <laughs> you know it was all there, memorized, and. Uh, and so then uh, I had notes, and part of uh, sometimes it was really great to prepare a Dharma talk by um, taking notes and outline or different things. Uh, if I was in the flow, sometimes I'd settle into the topic or into the Dharma, I'd sit first, meditate, and then it felt like it was a continuation of my meditation practice. You know, and I loved the creativity that came out that way. And uh, so that wasn't a good, good day. And sometimes I would go, sometimes go and, and read a few little different books and uh, pick up a paragraph here or there and see it. And, and in a good day, I would feel like I would savor that, those teachings, and take them in and contribute to the, not just the ideas of what I was going to teach, but also the atmosphere of the teaching, the sense or the quality of it. And then at some point, after about 10 years, uh, two things happened. Um, I didn't have, I still had kids young kids at home. I didn't have time to prepare anymore. Uh, so that, and then I thought my talks got worse. Uh, but people liked them more. <laughs> and then, uh, but the other thing that happened soon thereafter was that uh, uh, my relationship to preparing changed. And I would sit down with a piece of paper to write notes and I'd literally feel a, f- a repulsive force from that. It was like, I can't do that. It's just like, you know, I mean, it was like quite something to feel this. Like, no, no way. That was going the wrong direction. And so I'd go for a walk instead or go sit, meditate instead. And, uh, and then a whole different process. Um, and uh, sometimes now, these days when I give her a Dharma talk, I have some basic idea in my mind. I've kind of formed an outline just on my own thinking, you know, or maybe three points or what direction I'm going to start with. And then as I give the talk, um, the, the, uh, the, tr- the path opens up in front of me. And I just follow the trail. You know, I'm following something. And sometimes it takes me away from where I thought I was going to go. And, um, 
And if, um, and then also, uh, when I give a talk these days, I'm also, t- I'm still trying to understand what I'm teaching. That's my preferred stance to be in. And so maybe, maybe people who listen to me think like, I know a lot, you know, boy, Gil knows a lot or something. I don't, I don't have that internal sense. I mean, I know I know a lot about Buddhism, but I mean, so I, I, that's true. But my, my inner feeling for myself is that I'm actually on the edge of what I don't understand. And I, that's where I like to be. So I don't know if that comes across when I teach, but I kind of, that's, I, you know, I'm exploring it with you kind of to some degree, or I'm trying to. And the other thing I've learned in these years of teaching, and that's very important, and I'm, trying to, and also try, I'm also trying to stay uh, in touch with the feeling inside of whatever I'm teaching. There's a feeling tone, there's a quality, a sentiment, sensations inside that go along with it. So I'm trying to feel my way into something too, not just talk about it. And uh, so much so that uh, occasionally... Uh, it was much more before, but uh, it just occasionally happens nowadays too. I get into what I call for myself my explanatory mode. And my wife will ask, how did it go today? And I say, oh, I fell into my ex- explanatory mode. And when it's explanatory, I'm just explaining something and my heart is not in it. It's just ideas. It's very dry. It's like, it feels like cardboard for me. Like I, and sometimes there have been there are times where I, I don't know I recognize it, and I don't know how to get out of it. And okay, I just have to put up with this today, <laughs> and this is how it is. And um, and um, so uh, yeah, I should apologize for those days because I don't like explaining things, even though I do explain things. But there's much, something much more important going on. Does that get does that answer your question well enough? Satisfy your question? But why did you ask? Oh, I, I've done a few myself over the years. I'm sure people have, like, probably in this room have thought about, have done it or have thought about it. So I was just curious to hear, like, your process or your approach to it. Great. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Okay. So uh, thank you all.